DJ, drop a beat. Not another podcast. 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 Those people are the freaks, man. They're hookers, so it's fine. James. Meth is a hell of a drug. Okay, bitch, it's on. Price. You know what really grinds my gears? I bet they're Brazilianaires. Samantha. Get out now or sting, get weaved. When we're really <laughs> desperate, we put our hands underneath his balls. Big Jim. I know my way around a joke. You've been shaving your own pubic hair for years? No, I've just been collecting it. I'm not weird. Danny. Don't want to sound like a dick or nothing. Had an expansive bookmark collection. What the hell is wrong with you people? Not another podcast. Uh, Hey, hey, don't fucking mock it or it'll go away. Fuck, it should have been gone already. This is Portland goddamn Oregon. Yeah, do you want triple digits? We had that. Bullshit. Triple digits are supposed to be coming back this weekend. Look what you fucking did. Not me. Not me. I knew that was happening. Like I said, bullshit. should be ashamed of yourself. Dude, it's just us today. I know. We can talk about whatever the fuck we want to talk about. You ever get an itch on your balls that you're scared to scratch because you're afraid it'll open something up and your balls will fall out? Well, now I do. (laughs) you're welcome for that imagery (laughs) it's so funny because earlier this week i watched uh i spit on your grave too and there's a a point where the woman has uh, one of her rapist balls in a vice and she just keeps squeezing and squeezing until one of his balls falls out and as soon as you said that that was the image that popped in my head (laughs) popped interesting choice of words (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow that was in stereo almost <laughs> outstanding uh, dude i know we talk about it a bunch but uh there's no one i'd rather talk about it with than you let's fucking talk about some music what have you been listening to lately honestly i've been really diving down the path of like uh well i i, I got the warnings new album which has always kind of been front of my playlist, but honestly, I can't seem to get away from the new Rammstein album. Like every time I try to listen to something else, I'm always like, no, no, I got to hear that shit again. So, um, yeah, for me, I actually had a song pop up in my head and it led me back to a band. I haven't listened to in a while, but I've been listening to, uh, heavy bones, uh, lately which was right. Gary Hoey and Frankie Benali's band back in 1990. Yeah, yeah. And they only had one album, but man, is it a good album. Yeah, I love that shit. Uh, when Josie and I went and watched um, George Clinton and Parliament Funk, we got they to... They played uh, Heavy Bone songs? No, no, but it just made <laughs> me think of it because uh, we got introduced to Fishbone. Mm. And they were a lot of fucking fun. Them, them guys have more energy than I ever dream of having at the age that some of them fellers are. But there was a new uh, band that came up called Blue Eye Extinction. And I'm not going to lie, their recorded stuff doesn't sound great, but their Mm -hmm. live shit sounds like Rage Against the Machine, but better. (laughs) Like, not trying to throw no shade, but... No, as I was listening to dude, you're not offending me. Uh, I honestly like I've heard I've heard other bands do 
rage better than rage so yeah and these guys you know, are right up there man it, it's the same way i i you know there's a lot of people that prop up um a perfect circle mm-hmm. but for my money 10 years does it better you know i'm not going to disagree with you i will say a perfect circle has a bit of a special place in my heart oh uh, don't get me wrong i love a perfect circle but oh yeah yeah it's again, just one of those just, things where when I first moved into my very first apartment out of high school, you know, leaving the ancestral home, um, was right after they had just released Emotive. Mm-hmm. And so I got that album and I really loved their cover of John Lennon's song, Imagine. But it was like, it made me go back and listen to the 13th Step. And then it made me go back and listen to Merrick Norman's again. And it was like, fuck these are really solid songs and they kind of became the anthem for you know my (laughs) graduation into adulthood so they'll Mm. always have a special place do i think they're the best band of all time no but there is a you know special factor that i hold now the only thing that matters is that you like them i mean i've uh, we've we've said that on this show I don't know how many times we talked about guilty pleasures. And I think you and I were the only ones that were, we don't have guilty pleasures. It's just music. We like, yeah. and it's, you know, I'm unapologetic about the shit. I like, you know, I think for me, when I dictate a guilty pleasure, it's typically because I'm using myself as a gauge and it's like 13 year old me would have gone. What the fuck dude. Uh, <laughs> but 13 year old me was an asshole. So, you know, Fuck him. But it was one of those things where it's like when I admitted that I liked uh, one of the songs from Spice Girls, you know, too much. That song is a jam for me. 13 year old me would be like, man, fucking Spice Girls, whatever, dude. That's bullshit. <laughs> Fortunately, when you know, I was in 13, I was so into uh, pop and and stuff like that. I would have been like, yeah. And and I am unashamed to admit that I actually went and saw the Spice Girls live. So there's that. Bitching. <laughs> it was it was one of the best shows i'd ever seen i was a little out of place because i was a, a late 20s year old man in a sea of 12 year old girls <laughs> fair so fair. there's that. that but the that, soccer moms that were that were there were hot right and you know <laughs> they put out so i mean fuck <laughs> So yeah, no, I look, I don't care what you like. Uh if yeah. you like it, doesn't mean it's it's my thing, you know, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shit on someone just because they like something that I don't like. Right. You know? And honestly for me, I I will always I will have an opinion on something like, you know, uh Bob Dylan is probably the bane of my existence. I don't like Bob Dylan. I have said this many times to probably you and Travis. I, I just, I don't get him. I don't, there's just, Dude, you're, I must you're not alone. I, I have never been a Dylan fan. I can appreciate what he's done for music. Yes. But yes. personally for me, it just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't float my boat. Yeah. yeah uh, I, I am the same way. way. Oh, go ahead. I, I will get crucified for this, I know, but it's the same way as the Beatles for me. The Beatles yeah. have never. But what's funny is I love the Stones. That's fair. And you honestly, know? I was just asked that question by one of my coworkers the other day. They were like, Rolling Stones or Beatles? And I was like, 
what are we talking here? And he goes, well, which one do you think is better? And it's like, oh, I got to give it up to the Beatles, man. They knew how to write fucking hits. They were massive superstars. They kind of set the standard for, you know, pop sensation. So I got to give it to them. I will say that the Rolling Stones gave them a run for their money. But I think for widely accepted, the Beatles got it. And it's like, I was the same way. And to be honest with you, I've grown on the Beatles a little bit, but not enough to I, I have I too. like them. Yeah. But, I, I, still, but for me, it's, it's, and again, maybe this is just my, my more pop sensibility. I really love their, their earlier albums with all their hits when they started getting like really into drugs and getting that, all that weird shit. I, I, I just don't like, it just doesn't, it, Maybe it goes over my head. Maybe I don't understand it. I don't know what it is, but it just, it, it doesn't hit with me. Yeah. You know? No, I'm with you 100%. For me, and again, I haven't heard everything they've done, so don't fucking, but for me, the Stones have always been more consistent in their songwriting. Fair. They've always had a bit more edge than the Beatles did, and maybe it's because I, I'm kind of a metal kid at heart. For me, that that means something. Yeah, you no, know? absolutely, and I won't disagree with you at all on that. Um, and honestly, I think that's probably what kept the Stones from hitting that ultra superstardom that the Beatles did was, mm-hmm. you know, they were consistent. They were... They had a style, they had a shtick, and they stuck with it. And the only exception to their style and shtick really was Painted Black, and that stands to be probably their best-known song. And I got nothing against it. I I still love the Stones. I mean, fuck, they were my first real concert. Well, okay, second real concert. My first real concert was Crosby, Steels, and Nash. And I didn't know a goddamn one of their songs. And I was really young, and my mom was super stoked about it. And she's like, come on, let's go watch the show. I was like, okay. Sitting in the bleachers listening to this fucking Yacht Rock. I, I Dude, it, it's not even Yacht Rock. Not even, not even. <laughs> it's so it was like, fart rock. I, I had nothing invested. And then my dad was like, yeah, I got us tickets to go see the Stones, you know, Bridge to Babylon. I was like, okay, I at least know one or two of their jams. Fuck yeah, all right. Turns out we had the seats behind the stage. So, you know, can't really say that I saw the Rolling Stones so much <laughs> as I saw where they were standing roughly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, I, I got nothing against them. And again, it's like, you know, when people tell me they're really into new stars and, you know, new types of music that are coming out, it's like, cool, that's awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm always looking for the next thing. But typically, and my age now, I'm looking for metal that is pushing what I consider to be metal, you know, and or I'm looking for something new from a band I love, case in point, Rammstein. I mean, for some reason, those guys, their sound sonically hits me just about perfect. And they've never been a screamer band. They've never had that super hard growly, you know, sound to them which is something i typically go for there's something about what they mesh between the super simplistic riffs the driving industrial drum beat that follows it and just that super calm baritone that comes out of till Lindman. it's like fuck i don't know how you guys stumbled on this but 
Bravo. No, Bravo. I, I would I would I would throw Rammstein in in the same category that I do the Stones, and that is they're fucking consistent. They found something that works. They experiment within that format, yep. but they don't stray too far from it, and it fucking works. And because it's the same it's the same reason that I love and hate ACDC. Fair. They found a formula that works. They don't stray from it. And look how long their fucking career went on. Oh, yeah. With and how well known they are. After a hit, I think Rammstein's going to be the same thing. 20 years from now, if we're still doing this, we're going <laughs> to be how awesome they are and how they've they haven't gone outside their their safe little world and still managed to produce fucking amazing album after amazing album it's the same i feel the same way about the stones i feel the same way about fucking kiss and i know a lot of people hate kiss a lot of people love kiss i've been a kiss fan my entire life but i'll be the first to admit they have a formula and they've stuck with it anytime they went outside that formula it failed yep they went right back to their formula and had hit after hit. It's why they're so well known. I mean, yep. also because they have an amazing live show. Oh, um, yeah. And I think but, that's a part of it too. In the respects, they not only maintained their rep with their fandom by being consistent, but ramping up the fact that their live performance was so impressive at the time. Um, it made them well-known. I mean, fuck, I just got done watching the documentary on Guar. And I will concede that Guar was never a band that was ever on my radar until I was a kid and I was playing Beavis and Butthead, the video game, and they were talking about getting Guar tickets. I was like, who the fuck are these guys? And it took me decades to find their music because, A, it never got played anywhere. I missed the episode of Beavis and Butthead where they watched the video, so I didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. And in my 20s, I found the song Sick of You. I love that song. I'm so glad you did that song. It is such a It's a great song. It is such a great... It's a great, simple riff. Riff. uh, Riff. um, And it's... Again, these... If you know anything about Guar, you know that they're not musicians per se they're fucking art students who took well, an idea and ran with it there are more uh, so musicians now than they were then. now yes but when they started when that first album hit no they were uh, and it, chord it punk at best it it shows oh, yeah. but that song is amazing and they're a band that you can actually from album to album you can note their progress Oh yeah. Uh, not just visually, but musically speaking, songwriting speaking, they're a band that you can chronicle their growth through their and albums. And for me, it was awesome to watch it too. And I was a little disappointed that they didn't talk to uh, Lordy because the way I've always framed Lordy to people who have never heard him, it's like, okay, imagine Guar, stage makeup, the whole nine yards, the whole bit, you know, the shtick essentially, but really catchy fucking music. Yeah. And it's like, they took what Guar started and made it better. Just like Guar took what kiss started with their live show and made it their own, made it better in the respects. It was more grotesque. It was more over the top, you know, 
where Kiss was, you know, makeup with fire and lots of lights and shit like that, very flashy show. Guar said, we don't need all the pyrotechnics. I'm just going to spray jizz all over the crowd, and they're going to fucking love it. You know? <laughs> Guar was just, look, let's make this really weird science fiction play, essentially. Yep. And, and we'll make our own music to go with it. I mean, that's all it was. It was like, <laughs> it was clearly a, uh, an idea from a bunch of stoners, but they were in this... They were in this place. There's a documentary. I'll try and find it. There's a documentary on YouTube um, about the rise of gore. Uh, and it's really interesting because it, it they got their start in this really kind of artsy part of... Uh, I'm blanking on where it was, but um, it's kind of a shithole town. But like all these artists kept gathering there and there was a workshop where they all got together yep. and shared ideas and shit. And that's where it came from. Yeah, it was the, all the these fucking art school dropouts, essentially. Yeah. And they took an idea and they had this community already set up that was like, oh, this person can make costumes and this person can do this and this person. Now all we need is music. Fuck, that means we got to learn instruments. <laughs> well, and that was the thing, too. It's but like, it worked, you know? If you get a chance, watch the documentary that's on Shutter because they talk about all of that. Yeah. From the starting phases of this guy who just wanted to make, you know, prop designs originally for professional wrestling, um, decided he wanted to make a movie and he called it the scum dogs of the universe. Yep. And that's when he inducted some of the original band members to play these parts in this little short film. And they were like, fuck, I, I know a few people who can play a little bit. I mean, why don't we just... <laughs> take this as a roadshow kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, it was really fun to watch the evolution of them. But again, musically, they only hit me like once or twice. And that's not a bad thing. That just means that they weren't necessarily my style. Yeah. But bands like Kiss, I, I will be the first to own up that I didn't join the Kiss Army until Psycho Circus hit. And that's well, and that would have been about the time that I mean, you were diving into that. So, uh -huh. you know, I was very fortunate because uh, I think so. I was about three years old, and um, at the time, my parents had it was the earliest version of HBO, and they were they were showing a Kiss concert on HBO, nice. and. Um, they had been, we'd seen commercials for it. And of course, at three years old, all I saw was these uh, superheroes in makeup. That's that's all my brain caught. Yep. So my parents agreed to let me stay up and watch it. I think they were curious about it too. But there came a point that where they shut it off because they thought it was too much. Gotcha. And that was, of course, when Gene Simmons was spitting the blood. And of course, that's what grabbed me. <laughs> yep. So they turned it off, and and I had to watch Chips instead. And, and <laughs> but at three, I didn't. I, motorcycles were the thing, so who cares? Right. But the fun. next day, I was still talking about Kiss. So my dad went out into the garage and made me a cardboard guitar, so I could I could be Kiss, and it oh, it yeah. never fucking never went away so when i bought my very first album on my own i bought kiss dressed to kill nice that was my 
the first album I bought myself. And my mom still to this day says that had she known I would have grown up to be such a Kiss fan, she would have been collecting all the albums for me. So I would have had all the original pressing LPs, the fucking vinyl. Well, it was funny too that you... Damn it, mom! Yeah, no shit, right? You know, it's funny because uh, I had told my mother that I, I wanted... Kiss's new album Psycho Circus that was coming out and the only reason I knew about it was because it was Halloween night I was out with my buddy Drew and we were hitting all the houses you know doing our thing I came back home I was getting ready to go to bed because you know birthday next day hell yeah but I flipped on the TV and Mad TV was on and I was like fuck yeah I love Mad TV and Kiss was their special guest and at the end of like the you know, primary part of the show, they went live to the Kiss concert. Yeah. And I got to watch them perform the title track, Psycho Circus. And I was like, fuck yes, dude. This is my jam. I love this. Fuck yeah. And so, yeah, the next day I asked my mom for Christmas if I could have that album and she got it for me. And I will be the first person to concede that I was super excited for it. I listened to Psycho Circus on repeat for about two months. And I think there was one other track on there that I listened to, but everything else I thought was kind of hot garbage. <laughs> uh, as, as a lifelong Kiss fan, I will say you are not wrong. Mm-hmm. That album is awful. That yeah. song is amazing. That album is awful. And I will also be the first to say there's not a Kiss album in their entire catalog that I can listen to front to back. Front to back. Yeah. Yeah. They have a lot of great songs, and some of the albums have two or three, sometimes four. Uh-huh. The closest album that they have that I can listen to front to back is Hot in the Shade. Fair. It was. Okay. So, out of curiosity, what are your top three albums that you can listen to front to back and never even consider skipping a song? Oh, you might have to give me a week on that one. I'll have, I'll have to think about it. All right. How about just a one then? One album just that one? that stands out as I will never skip a single song on this because goddamn, they all hit. Uh, I will say Lacuna Coil's Karma Code. Fair. front to back it's a solid album from them and i think it's the last it's the first and last album from them that i can listen to front to back everything else is is hit or miss with me although i love every single album and i will admit i have not listened to the newest album yet gotcha and i'm kind of excited because they're redoing coma lies for the 20th anniversary it's coming out here pretty soon. And I just heard, uh, I finally just heard the new version of one of their songs called Tightrope. And it is like a million times better than the original. Gotcha. Which is weird. So, Man. but I'm afraid because that song is good, but it's like, are you going to, are you going to butcher the songs that were good on that? <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> See, I have probably two in my back pocket that I could listen to front to back and they just, they're never a miss. Um, One would be Apocalypse Orchestra's The End Is Nigh. I knew that Uh, was going to be one of your picks. Dude, full disclosure, man, as soon as I bought that album, because I got the digital version, 
I, I listened to the opening track, which is the song that caught my attention in the first place. And I listened to it and I was like, you know what? Screw it. I was at my work day. So I was like, fuck it. I'll just let it run and throw the album on repeat and see if I get any hit or misses. And fuck if every single one of those goddamn tracks wasn't just perfect. It was like, how the fuck did you guys do this? That is brilliant. And I love I, it. I actually just thought of one. Uh, Plush's uh, debut album. Oh, yeah. That's a solid album from four extremely ta- talented young women. Fair, um, fair. I was really sad when I missed them when they were in town, but I'm hoping they come back soon. That album is fucking solid. You want chunk? It's got chunk. You want like heartstring pulling acoustic? It's on there. It's Hell a great yeah. album. And, and yeah, I fucking love them. And I actually just saw they posted on their Instagram and it made me laugh. Uh, their singer, Mariah, who's like this four foot nothing uh, little spitfire was apparently warming up at a show recently where she was just running around blowing on a kazoo. Nice. And it was hysterical for some reason. That is awesome. <laughs> you mentioned the warning the other day. Did you see what happened at their show when they were opening for Hailstorm? No. So they were on stage, um, probably mid-set, and Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm came out and gave uh, Daniela a brand new Lizzie Hale Explorer. Oh, that's bad. Which she then played. But it's like, this is your gift. And, and, oh, my God, dude, the reaction from her. And her sister, uh, Ale, was in the back, and Ale was just like, no one gives me a bass. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I'm not going to lie, man, oh. those girls, they're, they're something special. I, I really hope that they can, I hope they have the stamina to maintain this because I'm really looking forward to see everything that they can come up with. But I know that. I am a little disappointed, though, that the new album is more of an EP with just song songs they've recorded, put on to pad it out. Yeah, but honestly, I don't mind it because the majority of the album is still pretty solid. It's not as well, good. It, I'm as... not, I'm not disagreeing. It makes it a solid oh. album, but you know, if you're not going to put out like 10 new songs, you know, I mean, there's only like four new songs on that album. Well, I and think don't get I... me wrong. They're solid. I love them. Oh, I, yeah. I love every song on that <laughs> album. And it, it now makes it an album that I can listen to front to back without skipping. Right. But six of those songs were on the last album. True. And again, I was you know, a little frustrated when I downloaded it. It changed the cover of the songs that I had bought before. And it was like, boo! But, you know, honestly, I, I think that kind of speaks volumes to the age that we're living in right now because there was an interview with uh, Weird Al Yankovic uh, after he had released Mandatory Fun. Uh, that was the end of his contract with his record label. He was... Mm-hmm on the docket for a set amount of albums to be released and mandatory fun was the last one. And so they asked him, they were like, are you going to put out any more music? He goes, honestly, I might do a single here and there, but that's kind of the world we live in right now where albums don't necessarily sell anymore, just singles, you know, people pick and choose off of the album, what they're going to buy. And it's almost makes more sense to just release individual tracks rather than a full studio album. 
No, and he's he's not wrong, and and honestly, it's it's not too different what they from what they did back in the fifties. Bands or artists would would write a single, and that single would be put onto a compilation album with a bunch of other singles. So bands would take more time crafting songs, so they always had a hit. Yep. Sometime in the sixties, though, they started putting out full albums, and honestly, I think it was the Beatles who started it, but then likely you know once that thing happened so then bands were you know so i i don't want to say that it hampered creativity but it forced bands to you know write a lot of filler and i think you know i think that was something i was going to touch on in the respects that it's like some of the bands that i grew up loving you know i mean like one of the other through play albums that i absolutely adore is corn's follow the leader i fucking adore that album Front to back, I love every song on it. Issues, I love 90% of it, but I will find myself skipping one or two tracks here and there. You know, albums like Life is Peachy and Self-Titled, they're fucking banger albums, but I will skip songs on those as well. But it's one of those things where I think after the standard had been set with like the Beatles producing full studio albums with like 10 or 12 tracks the studio labels are basically like, this is what we need. I don't care what you put in here. Um, I need at least a hit and the rest, I don't really give a shit. So make it happen. And I think that led to a lot of meh albums because, you know, there's one great track on it, but there's 10 others that are just like, I, I could take it or leave it. But also think of, think of how it affected the, the, the way concerts were done. Cause again, they would package these massive shows in the fifties where you'd get 10 or 12 bands, but they're, they're only out performing one song and they're usually with a backing band. Yeah. You know? So, so if bands wanted to, you know, perform shows, they had to have at least a full album to draw material from so they could play a half an hour show. True. You know, and and you know if you didn't have that material then you weren't touring so at at the time from the 60s on you know if you wanted to perform live you needed to have an album with a bunch of filler yeah. you know and sometimes the filler was better than the hits in my opinion there's a lot of albums that i liked you know some of the b-sides better right. than what they they put out i'll give you an example warrant uh the band warrant yeah. is uh they get a lot of shit for uh being a hair band and that's because they came out at the time and their big hit is fucking cherry pie but you know what's on that album every other song on that album is 20 times better than cherry pie that's fair i think that also came down to the marketability with the respects it's oh, like yeah, you know, i i don't know enough about music theory to really have a stance on it necessarily, but I do know that there is a formula to creating a hit. There is a formula to making something sonically hit in such a way that it would see radio play. And I know that guys are way smarter than I am when it comes to, you know, the formula. They were brought in to help these bands write a single hit. And that hit wasn't always the best, but it was the one that got all the radio play, much like in the case of Warren. I have a feeling somebody was brought in on Cherry Pie and was like, I'm going to make you a radio jam. 
Oh no no no! I don't give a fuck. Do you want to know the story behind cherry pie? Sure. It's a it's it's one of my favorite stories uh, about Warrant about any band really. So Warrant goes in. They had huge success with their debut album. Now during that time, a lot of bands would put out a debut album. It it go you know it do gangbusters, and then the second album they always called the sophomore slump because it didn't yep. do as well as the first album. Uh, very few bands uh, had a second album as good or better. Tesla is a band that their second album was that was way better than their first. Um, Poison, second yeah. album, way better than their first. So Warrant comes in, and and there's the big fear about the the sophomore slump, as they called it. Warrant goes in the studio, writes an amazing album, just hit after hit after hit after hit. They, they turn it into the record company and the record company goes, we don't hear a hit on here. You need an anthem. You need something that everyone's going to be singing and, and they want to go see. And, yeah. and so it was, it was a challenge. So Janie Lane, who was the primary songwriter went, okay, fine. I'll write a hit. Pissed off because they had spent months working on this material the whole band was pissed off. So they go in and they write cherry pie in 24 hours. Nice. Put it together. They turn it in and the record company's like, this is a hit. And they all fucking hated that song. <laughs> I always feel bad for bands that hate their own music. I really do. Because like, I can't remember who it was. Oh, it was uh, when I was growing up, Cold Chamber had just gotten chamber music done. And chamber music was way a departure from their OG shit. And they fucking hated it. They hated each other too, because they were such, they were in a real bad place with chamber music. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it was just one of those things where when I found that out, I was like, but how can you hate this? I mean, there's some banger songs on it. I mean, granted, okay, you did a cover of shock the monkey and that's the only one that saw any radio play, which sucks. Which but, is, which is again, it's record company fucking logistics. It was the only thing that they could put out that was somewhat recognizable. Yeah. But for my money, the chamber music has got, for me anyway, it's got some of the best shit that Cold Chamber ever done. And I am a fucking hardcore uh, Cold Chamber fan. Um, I loved their OG shit with like oddities and, you know, Loco and... I mean, well, their first album's great, but I, oh, yeah. again, chamber music and and however loath they might be to admit it, chamber music is is one of those albums that you can listen to the first album and listen to the second one and hear the growth. Yep, and I, I really like, like that. that. And and it continues on with with uh, dark days. Yeah, dark days is oh, so much King. better. God, but, that song was a banger. <laughs> because of the, because of the tension between um their singer and their guitar player yeah like they had been friends for years but as soon as they started working together there's they can't even be in the same room it hardly. sucks too because cold chamber is the whole reason i fell in love with the mockingbird i have always wanted that see-through green acrylic mockingbird because of cold chamber because i was like god damn it that guitar looks cool as shit I got to see him play it live. It was cool. It was one of those things where it was like, I love it when you can hear growth in a band. And it's one of the reasons I didn't necessarily bring up Pantera because that's not really fair. Um, 
the majority of their body of work I can listen to front to back without any issue. But it's like, that was something I experienced that was really unique to me was I got a hold of every single Pantera album from, uh, what was it? Metal Magic all the way through uh, Reinventing the Steel. So I'm listening to their OG hair metal days. Uh, I think it was Metal Magic. It was I Am the Night, Projects in the Jungle, and um, Power Metal. The four albums that came before Cowboys from Hell. And what I found fascinating about it was, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of meh songs on those first four albums. But what was cool about it for me was, at the time I started listening to it, was really when you know, Dime had become my magnum cum laude of guitar. It was really cool to listen to his relationship with his guitar grow and his understanding of what it could do, what he wanted it to do, how he wanted it to sound. You could hear the evolution in his sound so much so that when Cowboys from Hell hit, you can hear an absolute understanding between the two of them, but it wasn't done yet. Vulgar Display of Power, I will say, was the pinnacle of the old Pantera meets the new direction they were going in perfect harmony with making shit that sound good enough to hit radio play. Everything after that, Far Beyond Driven, now Dime and his guitar, they were old fucking friends and they were just having a wild fucking time. And by the time Reinventing the Steel came out, they were still really, really close, but you could almost hear like the drama and bullshit that Phil was bringing into the group start to take away some of the joy that was made. And it was a lot of fun to just kind of go on that little adventure of evolution for music. And it's like, oh, yeah, you, work harder. you bring up an interesting uh, uh, side note and, and, and that is, isn't it interesting, especially the longer a band's been around that you can kind of hear what the band is going through the drama in certain albums, whatever it is, you can kind of hear it. Like again, kiss is, is I'll, I'll bring it up because uh, they have such a huge catalog and I know so much about what they were going through, especially during the eighties, the eighties. So during the seventies, it, it was in, it was always interesting to me how from album to album, uh, the hits were either Paul or Gene singing. Yep. But during the 80s, all the hits, all the good songs were all Paul. Uh-huh. And and I found out later um, that it was during the 80s, Paul and Gene had kind of stopped working together. They stopped writing together. And and it, actually, it was even before that. It was like uh, around 1978. There was a lot of tension in the band around 78. They were trying to keep the band together. So they went, okay, you know what? Everyone gets to do a solo album. Oh yeah. That's and, right. and let's just see, let's just see who is, you know, the most popular. Uh, and it turned out Ace's album was the most popular, but if you ask me, Paul's album has the better songs on it. Yep. Paul's album. I can listen to front to back. Mm-hmm. Peter Chris, I can't listen to a goddamn thing on that nope. album. Poor Peter. He's a terrible songwriter, <laughs> terrible singer. Everyone knows it. He tried the so songs hard. that in Kiss that he sang were largely written by Gene. Wasn't his, they gave him writing like credit and let him sing it, 
to placate his ego. Fair. Uh, even think- even the, the song Beth, which is like his big magnum opus, Gene rewrote it. Mm-hmm. Because the original song is like no one's no one's gonna get this. Yep. You know? So Gene rewrote rewrote it. Suddenly Peter Chris has a big ha- uh, hit on his hands in 1976, and he thinks, oh, I could write more. <laughs> and everything that they every time there's a Peter Chris song on a KISS album. It's them going, okay, we have we we need a song to fill. Hey guys, <sighs> let Peter do song. his song. Because otherwise he's gonna threaten to quit again. Yeah, no shit. So yeah, in, in 78, they do the solo albums. Uh Freely's album is the most popular, but again, like I said, for my money, Paul's was the best album. Yeah. Gene's album, I think, has one song that's okay on it. Gotcha. Um Ace's album, if I were going to go in order of the, the albums I like, it would be Paul's, Ace, Jeans, Peters. Gotcha. So after that, then they get into the fucking disco shit. That doesn't fly, even though it does end up giving them one or two of their biggest hits of all time, Yeah. oddly enough. The band starts to break apart, but because of what they did with the solo albums, Gene and Paul stop writing together. Hmm. They just start going off on their own now 80s comes around they take off the makeup they've got a whole new you know audience yep but every fucking one of their hits is sang by paul written by paul gene didn't have a hit until fucking revenge in 1991 and that was the first song the around the time that lick it up came from yep 1983 yep and so they oh, no wait 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 I take it back they did have one hit in the eighties that was Gene and that was I love it loud yeah and that may that have been the last well. song that may have been the last song that he and Paul worked on and I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure that they worked on it together See, but and fucking I think that's Paul one of those was brilliant were I have massive respect for bands that are able to stick together I mean because a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't, whether it's egos that get away or just band drama. I mean, you look at bands like like Slipknot, for instance. I mean, there was a time during Iowa where they fucking hated each other. They just wanted... Oh, yeah. And you've got to fucking tour and perform and live with these people. And it's... Look, every band who says it is is not wrong. Every band says it's like a marriage. And you have to work at a marriage. And when it's just one or, you know, you and one other person, it's a lot of work. Yeah. But when you add a third or fourth or a fifth or in Slipknot's case, nine. Yeah. That's a lot of fucking. That's a lot of fucking personalities to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And in a creative setting and you and I know in a creative setting, it can fucking get tense. Oh, yeah. And when it feels like your ideas are not being listened to you get fucking pissed off. Oh yeah. Or when people are trying to change your work and, and they're not listening, you bring an idea and they're like, no, nah, no, nah, let's do it this way. And it's like, look, I understand shit's going to change, but can we do it this way first? Right. And just see, maybe and, I'm wrong, but it's like, it's my idea and I want to see it right. come to fruition. And I think that's why it, especially in the case of Slipknot, at least two of the members have other projects outside of Slipknot. So they can go, 
okay, this idea didn't fly in, in my main band. So I'm going to take it to my side project right. or my solo project. And I'm going to fucking do it the way I want to do it. Right. You know, and again, I don't have a problem with that, but again, the one thing that I will give over just about any band that I have ever listened to is Rammstein. And it's because they've been doing this now for over 20, like five years, almost 26 years, I think. Never had a lineup change. Never really officially broke up. Um, even the guitarist said lots and lots of counseling <laughs> were helpful in that. But it was like, it, it was fascinating to me because, you know, like with Kiss, them getting to a point where they just didn't want to write together anymore. I mean, Rammstein, yeah, they might have had their oh, differences, oh, it, but fuck, they It wasn't that they out. didn't want to write anymore. It, it, it wasn't that they didn't no, want just, to write yeah, together. They just yeah, didn't and, want to work and that's, again, that's that's not the case that happened. What happened was, is one of the members, Gene, decided <laughs> he, won't say. He, he wanted to do other shit. And he will cop oh. to this now. Back in the day, he wouldn't cop to it, but... Uh, I, I've I've read both Gene and Paul's books, and they're both very honest in the fact that look at that time, for Gene it was like at that time, I was getting a really big head because people were telling me, oh you should try this or do this, and I thought I could produce and 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 fucking Gene was so spread spread so thin that Kiss was kind of on the back burner for him. Yeah, like he loved he loved touring and stuff, but when he would come in to record, he would have these half-assed songs why paul especially during the 80s he did nothing but kiss that's all he did he wrote and and it shows because when you look at the 80s their catalog their their hits are largely paul yeah and paul was really smart because he was associating with really strong songwriters at the time Right. So he'd get them in to help him work on songs. Paul didn't start deviating from Kiss until late nineties. You know? Right. He did he did Phantom of the Opera for a while, but that wasn't until like the nineties. And it was during all this downtime because they had a, a bunch of shit going on. Eric Carr's health, for instance. Uh they were between they were trying to decide about this whole fucking reunion shit. There was a lot of shit going on, and it gave him time to you know what? Maybe I would like to try different shit. Right. So he did, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, going back to what you were saying, like it is a struggle. And I, I give kudos to any band who manages to keep most of their original lineup. And there are bands out there that there's not a single original member in, Oh yeah. you know, you know, so and any band who's able to keep the majority of their lineup, Metallica, uh, oh, yeah. they have a bass issue. <laughs> <laughs> Either but, die or quit. <laughs> but it's like, you know, you, you got to wonder, you know, and, and fucking Newstead didn't want to quit. No, he just wanted but... to experiment. And at the time. Uh, and, and I think Hetfield cops to this now at the time. Hetfield thought that, look, if you're in Metallica, you should only do Metallica. Yeah. Well, Newstead was, he was creatively, he was in a place where he wanted to experiment and the guys weren't fucking listening to his ideas. So what do you do? You start a side project. Yeah. You know, 
No, and, and I, don't, I don't have anything against Newstead. Honestly, I, I give him full marks for putting up with the fucking hazing that Metallica put him through. That never ended. Yeah, that it, never it really ended. didn't. And it was one of those things where I give him full marks. I will say that uh, Robert has stepped into a position where there are giant shoes to fill, but he has definitely taken his own style to it. And I well, think he's made it his own, you know, yeah. and the, thankfully for him, because of what Jason did. Yeah. You know, the, the, the other guys realized what huge dicks they were and decided, you know what, that maybe that's part of why Jason left. Yeah. You know, and on top of and that, too, go through that again. Well, it was funny. I watched an interview with James Hetfield and this can't have been that long ago. Um, but it was like, he was talking about, you know, when Newstead joined up, you know, aside from the constant railing, the problem they were having with Jason was he was just following James. Like he was just doing simple rhythms and, you know, just kind of following along to the point where James was like, I'd turn away from him. So he couldn't see what I was doing and he'd come creeping around. So I'd have to turn the other direction. It's like, no dude, come up with something. It's okay. And I think there was, but a what's funny is whenever he there. did, James would shoot it down. Well, and in fairness, no. that's absolutely true in the respects that at the time, James and all of them were pretty rage filled. I mean, aside oh, yeah. from losing their best friend and being mad about that, they were also young, making a shit ton of money, getting shit faced on Jaeger all the time. And it just led to this really bad bullying situation that James cops to now that it was like, that really wasn't healthy or the good way to go about it. But that's how he was feeling at the time, you know, and for bands like Metallica, and I don't care what anybody says. I fucking love Metallica black album on. I don't like St. Anger and death magnetic needed a lot more love, but hardwired hardwired is pretty fucking solid. And hardwired is the first Metallic yeah. album in a long while that I enjoy. Yeah, but it's like yeah, I, it was funny. But look at what it look at what it took to get there. Well, you know, kind of circling back around to what we were talking about originally, though, with like bands creating hits. I have had my very first experience at a dissatisfied show, and I know I've talked to you about this, but I don't know that I've brought it up on the podcast so much. And I have, I grew up loving this band adoring them everything they were doing and i finally got to go see them live and all i wanted was one song and it's one of their biggest biggest fucking hits i was like okay but if i don't get that one i'll take their second really biggest hit they didn't give me a goddamn one of them not a single solitary fucking hit and i was so disappointed i was so mad and the band was Tool. I oh, loved boy. Tool. I loved them. I grew up with that shit. It, it got me to learn how not to play 4-4 all the fucking time. It, they had motivated me in a way that no other band really had. And I got to go see them live. And all I wanted was Sober. By far probably their biggest hit they've ever had. And they didn't give it to me. And I was like, okay, fine. Give me any of the major hits off of Inema. I'm a happy guy. I don't care which one. Stink Fist. Perfect. Inema. 
Perfect. I'd take any of them. You know what I got? Hooker with a penis and it was poorly done. And it's like, that's a good song. But fuck you guys. They gave me a bunch there, of songs there off There is the nothing album, worse than going... Meh. They gave me a bunch of songs off of Lateralis that were meh. They gave me a bunch of songs off of 10,000 Days. And it was like... Oh, oh you guys suck. So pissed me Did off. Did they at least play Ficarious off of 10,000 Days? Nope. Oh, fuck you. Yep. They played The Pot. There's nothing worse than going to see a band and, and having them play a bunch of songs that you don't want to hear Bunch of uh, essentially all the filler shit on the album that's what they play i went and saw the red hot chili peppers um <laughs> no i actually look i actually like the chili peppers i do too to an extent but i would never pay to see them and i i wanted i wanted to hear some hits some songs i knew not a, they didn't even play under the bridge dude no my way and I was like, the fuck? Serious. Come on, guys. Pull your head out of your ass. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was when uh, Dave Navarro was still in the band. I think that's when I got to see him. Maybe. Um, and the album with Navarro had good songs on it. Not a goddamn one yep. did they play and you know what sucks too? And this was kind of fun. They only played like one song that I recognized, and it was like this one? Yeah. All the great songs I and this is the one? Fucking you. Dude, seriously, it was one of those things. We left the show and we we're driving home. And we had to stop off, you know, tap a kidney. And so we pulled off into this little rest stop, you know, and I'm standing outside, just kind of hanging out, waiting for, you know, the boys to finish up. And this guy walks over. He goes, hey, you at the tool show? I was like, yeah. He goes, that was some fucking bullshit, wasn't it? I was like, yeah, <laughs> it really was. Nothing but a bunch of fucking B-setters. So we got to talking with this guy. And he goes, yeah, you know, I was the fucking front man for Spine Shank. And yeah, we had one fucking song, New Disease. And you know what? I played it at every goddamn show. You think I wanted to play that fucking song every goddamn show? No. But I fucking played the hits. And I was like, two things happened to me. One, I was like, hell yes. Two, I was like, fuck, I listened to that shit. I loved you guys. <laughs> so I got to meet the lead singer of Spine Shank at the end of the Tool concert. And both he and I were just as fucking pissed off about it. However... Not trying to throw him under the bus, but he is a Metallica purist. If it's not anything before Injustice for All, it's garbage. And it's like... Uh, see, you know, look, I, I get people like that, but at the same time, it's like, look. There's a lot of shit from Kiss I don't like. Uh -huh. But I'm not so much... Oh, I only listen to shit from 78 and before. <laughs> To 85. You are potentially missing so much good music. Yeah. You know? And and I get it. You know, for him, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, and Justice, they started getting big, and they weren't my band anymore. Fuck you. Seriously, dude. Fuck you. They're you love a band, you want them to succeed, because if, if they succeed, that means more music. Yeah. You know? And more chances to see them live. Otherwise, they're playing state fairs. Or just fucking dive bars at best. 
and if it, they're playing at all. Fucking look at Anvil. Oh yeah. That yeah. fucking band because oh they're not my band anymore. Whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> we we would spend a whole show on fucking Anvil. <laughs> but yeah, look, dude, love a band, hate a band, but don't fucking be oh yeah, everything after that is garbage. It's fucking bullshit. Well, and it's and like, I, gu- I guarantee you if you press that guy, he would he would admit to liking songs off of albums yeah. later than Master of Puppets. And don't get me wrong, it's one of those things where it's like I understand the fandom because, you know, I think this kind of happened for me with uh one of the bands I listened to. You know, their first album was really great. Their the Black Album, album. Was really great. I can listen to front front to back. What you got? The Black Album. Well, naturally. <laughs> That's a great yeah. album. That's a solid fucking album. I don't but know I can also I listen to Master of Puppets front to back. Uh, and Justice for All, I can listen to front to back. Yeah, Justice. I fucking love Justice. Um, Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning, there's a couple that I'll skip. Yeah, um, Kill Em All, I think, is probably up there with my least favorite. Of I the fucking... Look, I, I know it's one of their lesser albums, but I fucking love Load. Dude, Load front to back is a solid album to me. Yeah. Reload, not so much. Reload had some There's bangers a reason on it, it's, but yeah. Yeah, but it's largely filler. It's throwaways from the Load sessions. Fair. Um, I can't listen to anything after that until Hardwired. I mean, for and me... That's just, that's just me. That's my personal right. thing. I can't... like It, it just doesn't, it doesn't hit with me. But yeah, fucking, I, once we get to Hardwired... No, There's I'm totally with you. Sane Anger, I like two songs off of it. And that's it. Everything else is just bleh. Death Magnetic, I've only had a chance to listen to excerpts from it. And those were okay. They weren't great. They weren't bangers yeah, by any stretch. But it's like, you know, what was it? The, the Day That Never Comes. Not a bad song. Not a bad song. But I don't put it up in the high echelons of, you know, the stuff they've done in the past. But Hardwired, I mean, fuck, when I got to see them live and they were doing, you know, it was essentially the Hardwired tour. But they were bringing all the old school hits. They were, you know, bringing some of the heavy stuff. They were having some fun with it. But Moth into a Flame, the title track Hardwired, Atlas Rise. I mean, these are some fucking banger tracks that it's like, hell yes, boys. But I was going to tell you, though, it's like I understand the fandom in the respects that I, I listen to a band called Flaw. And I know you know them. I but love Flaw. It's one of those. Got their new album? The first album, fucking amazing. Loved everything yep. about it. Second album, really, really fucking solid. Sounded great. Had everything I was hoping for. Third album, they started to lose me a little bit. And by their fourth album, I was just like, did you have to be so mercenary about, you know, kind of riding the line between those Southern cowboys who are really military driven and, you know, songs about the soldier home fronts that it's like, I just, I don't, yeah, no, I'm not with you anymore, boys. I like some of the tracks off of there. Don't get me wrong. Off of both their last two albums. And I'm really on board with them, but yeah, those first two albums were solid as fuck through and through. And I think for me, it was because they weren't sticking to a shtick so much. Because like... You got the you got the new album? 
Uh, I have four of them. I don't know if that's the new one or not. Revival came out this year. Then I do not have it yet. It looks like it's... I, I got it. I haven't listened to it yet, but it looks like it's all cover tunes. Oh, okay. And now I really want to hear it because uh, they've got every breath you take. <laughs> I don't care anymore. Broken Wings. Hold on loosely. Okay. And still of the night. <laughs> all right. All right. That'll be entertaining. But it's one of those things where I, I will concede that there's one of the bands that I listen to, System of a Down, that I love. I love System of a Down. Their first, what, three albums. So it was self-titled, Toxicity, Steal This Album. I fucking adore these albums. Then they hit, I think it was Mesmerized and Hypnotized. And those two albums, I like them. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great songs on them. But I felt like their shtick was becoming a little too heavy-handed. Like, the first couple albums that were coming out, they were being more allegorical with their message you know trying to be a little bit silly yet still be poignant i mean for fuck's sake in the song toxicity they talk about eating seeds as a pastime activity and it's like if you look into it you know the message but at the same time it was less heavy-handed about it you know what i mean well, for so we talked earlier about bands finding their little niche and sticking with it. Sometimes I think System of a Down is a is a band that found their niche, but they should not have stayed in it. They're a yeah. band, not unlike Tool, that I think should have experimented more. I think they would have been more successful had they experimented more with their sound and their songwriting. Well, and you know I, what I mean. I will concede that that's accurate. But I will say that it's like when you get, you know, Serge Tankian off on his solo project, you hear elements of System of a Down, but it is a different take on things. Darren mm -hmm. Malachi, on the other hand, with Scars on Broadway, his first album that he came out with felt very, very System of a Down rip almost. But his later one, it still had a message, but again, he wasn't quite as heavy handed with it. And it was like, you know what, dude, that's pretty fucking solid. I can dig that. But that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. They, they go off on their own and they're, it's, they still have that sound, but they're experimenting outside of that, you know? And I think had they stayed together and experimented more, the albums would have been more successful and maybe they wouldn't have broken up. Oh, no, I don't they wouldn't because uh, the issue they were having was uh, Darren Malachi was taking the lion's share because he was doing all the press and, you know, he had a lot of heavy handedness with the writing credits. And so the percentage of divvying that System of a Down saw was like Darren was taking almost, I think they said something like 50 to 55% of all of the profits because of how many places that's, he had his name on it. and everyone Okay, so else that's not uncommon. Yeah, but it was like everyone else was having to divvy up the last 45% between the yeah, other three it, members. But again, you know what that means. The other members should have wrote more. Well, and that's... Because that happens... So, like, for example, Megadeth. Dave Mustaine writes everything. Oh, yeah. So he gets he gets everything. Yeah. You know? The rest of the band gets a percentage... 
but because Dave writes all the songs, he gets the majority. The reason they had a revolving door of members for so long is because of that. And Dave was like, look, you want more money? Write something. Yeah. And they were like, sure, I'll write something, but you're not going to fucking accept it because this is Megadeth. And he was like, aha, you get it. You know, the the times he was generous, though, and, and the reason that he had for the longest time, like they had his longest uh, group was when he had Marty Friedman in the band. Yep. Marty Friedman and Nick Menza. The reason that those guys stayed so long is because Dave was generous. Yeah. But unfortunately, Nick, uh, Nick Menza's substance abuse issues became a problem. Funny saying that because Dave Mustaine had such a substance abuse problem. <laughs> I still love watching the No More Missing Nice Guy video because he is fucking Oh, yeah, he's that. fucking wasted on it. But Dave will cop to that he never allowed his substance abuse to affect his show. Right. Videos is another thing, but <laughs> performing, he wouldn't let it affect. Nick, unfortunately, allowed it to affect yeah. the shows. And I know that there was issues with Marty Friedman as well. Oh, yeah. Those those became monetary though, because Friedman actually did write songs from. It, it wasn't fucking Rust in Peace. It was the album afterwards. Youth, uh, Euthanasia? No, no, that was the album after. Uh, so the one with Symphony of Destruction on it. Oh God damn it! it Friedman God did have writing credits on that. I fucking forget what it was. Yeah. I'll think of it after the show's done. But yeah, so Friedman got writing credits on that and then Euthanasia. And I think there was one more he was on. You know what sucks? I'm not mistaken. Trust. He was on Trust. Oh, I loved Trust. Or Risk. Trust is a solid album. Risk, yes. But Um, you know what was so fucking funny about that? And I I feel stupid about it. But again, this is one of those 13-year-old me scenarios. Uh, I had gotten to go to Rockfest 99 and, you know, Megadeth was one of the headliners. Rob Zombie, you know, kind of stole the show at the end. But yeah, so I had a chance to meet and have Dave Mustaine sign something for me. And I I wasn't a massive Megadeth fan. I knew they existed because I had heard a song or two on the radio, but that was about as far as I went. And I went up to get his autograph on my Ozzy Osbourne shirt because it was the only thing I had that I really wanted anybody to sign. And I had had a bunch of bands already sign it. Massive, massive Aussie fan back in the day, mind you. So Dave goes to try to start writing his name right at the tip of Aussie's thumb and screws up on the D. And so he turns it into a dick and balls right at the top of Aussie's <laughs> hitchhiker thumb. And I remember leaving that stand thinking, fuck Med- or Megadeth, they suck. Fuck Dave Mustaine, <laughs> asshole. Fucking write a dick on Ozzy's stuff. Man, fuck him. So for decades, you know what's really funny? Decades, I never touched Megadeth with a 30-foot fucking pole. And it wasn't until I started reading Dante's Inferno uh, in like circa 2005 or six or something like that. And I had come across Symphony of Destruction. And I was like, you know what? That probably would do rather well on this. So I listened to that. And then I remembered Trust. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And Breadline, ooh, yeah, that was a good song. 
And then it's like I started diving down the rabbit hole of Megadeth, and I was like, I am such a dickwad for hating Megadeth for so long. This shit is a jam. <laughs> and you know what's really funny? Ozzy Osbourne would have thought that fucking dick on his thumb was the funniest goddamn oh, yeah. thing in the world. <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong, dude. And that is like, in hindsight, I'm like, I got Dave Mustaine to draw a dick and balls on my fucking t-shirt. And had the signatures maintained to this day, that's kind of special because I don't think he did that with anybody else. So that's kind of a unique Dave Mustaine signature. Also, but that's the fandom we're talking about because he ruined your shirt. You fucking just oh, no, I'm I not touching them. I shut him out. Yeah, and that's and look I mean. at how much great music you missed. Yeah, and, and you eventually found, and that's why you know I think sometimes fandoms, the toxicity in fandoms is fucking horrendous. Oh yeah, and don't get Dude, me wrong. We have talked the for first over an hour. Oh, I know. We talking. have talked. <laughs> but what I will but say, but I want to have dinner. <laughs> whatever. But I will say though, as a parting note, that that experience did teach me to not shut myself off to shit out of principle. Yep. It's like it allowed me to go, oh my God, I was such a tit for shutting off Megadeth for so long. And I missed out on so many years of great tunes that at that well, point. And how many I times did you miss seeing them live because of it? In fairness, I didn't get to really go to shows unless somebody else bought me tickets for the longest time. And but, so it was again, if you liked them, maybe you would have gotten to go see them and see some of the amazing bands that opened for them. Fuck no, I didn't get to go see Metallica until I was in my fucking thirties. Yeah. You lived a sheltered life, my friend. Sadly. I, I've lived a poor life. See- Thank you. First time I got to see Megadeth, I was 16, and it was awesome. Again. And I will share that story another time, because right now we're going to say bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Not Another Podcast. There are so many places for you to find us outside of www.notanotherpodcast.com. For instance, you can find us on Facebook at Not Another Podcast. You can also find us on Tumblr at www.notanotherpodcast.tumblr.com. You can also find me, Samantha Stark, on Twitter at Samantha Stark 3 And you can find James on Twitter as well under James Spooky, spelled with an I-E, not a Y. And you wanted it, you asked for it, you got it. You can also find us now on iTunes under, you guessed it, Not Another Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Peace out, Not Another Podcasters.